I'm going to start with an interesting topic today. And the topic is interesting because when you hear the topic, you may think that um, it's a discouraging topic. It's really not. It's on the flip of that. It's contrary. It's an encouraging topic and really um, a soul-searching topic. So let's read together if you want to track along. I'm going to read in the book of Luke chapter 22. And it's uh, one of the saddest stories in Scripture. And so what my, what's on my heart really is... Um, when the enemy attacks, and uh, we need to keep mindful of that, especially with everything going on. I feel that Palms has been blessed uh, tremendously, and we have a lot of exercise and a lot of gift and a lot of uh, enthusiasm and love for the Lord. And um, we need to be aware that the enemy hates that. It's not a word I use lightly. I, we don't, we're not even allowed to use the word hate in our home. Uh, I think it's an ugly word, but the enemy, the devil, hates that activity and hates that love for the Lord. So, I want to read about a man who uh, promised God he'd never fail him, and he failed him. And yet you see the radical recovery in this man's life, and his name is Peter, and you know the story. So let's read together Luke chapter 22 and verse 24. I'm keeping watch at the time, and we'll try to keep this in order as well. So Luke chapter 22 and verse 24, and it says, And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be counted the greatest, verse 26, but he shall not, but ye shall not be so, Jesus is speaking, but he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. For whether is greater he that sitteth at meat or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat, but I am among you as he that serveth. Now, Peter uh, is there, and the Lord says to Peter, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy, fail, thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now notice Peter's words as he says to the Lord, and maybe some of you and I, I know as well as I have, have said very similar things to the Lord. Lord, I will never, and then we do. And so Peter says, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt Thrice deny that thou knowest me. So let's just jump because we're going to, uh, I don't want to spend too much time here, but I want to just look at when he denies Christ. Verse 54, notice Jesus says in verse 53, uh, you come at me with a thief, with swords and staves, but I was with you daily in the temple. You stretched forth no hands against me, but this is your hour. He says that to those that have come to see Christ and the power of darkness. Don't be mistaken that the believer can be impacted by the power of of darkness. Now we're all bound for heaven, but there's things that happen in life and we can be challenged. My note today is that although we've challenged, although that perhaps we've tripped in the past or maybe we've fallen or been discouraged or been away from the Lord, the Lord would love to restore. And he does. I've seen people in my small experience down at Pacific Garden Mission and different gospel works that have fallen in their walk for Christ. And when they've recovered, they're more powerful for the Lord than they've ever been uh, before they ever fell. So, and there's a lot of truth to that. We'll see that here in the story of Peter. So they take Peter and they take Christ. Then they took him, verse 54, and led him and brought him into the high priest's house. And Peter followed afar off. And notice Peter said he'll never deny Christ. And when they had kindled the fire in the midst of the hall, were set down together, Peter sat down among them. But a certain maid beheld him as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him and said, this man was also with him, with Christ. And Peter denies him, saying, Woman, I know him not. And after a little while, another 
saw him and said, Thou art also of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. And about the space of one hour after another, confidently affirmed, saying, Of a truth, this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter said, Man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately, I find it one of the most touching pieces of scripture in our Bible, immediately while he yet spoke, the cock crew. And while the Lord turned, and the Lord turned and looked upon Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now, uh, stay there, okay, because Peter's in a broken spot right now. And then look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 13 and verse 14, and you see an amazing truth as Peter's restored. So look at these verses here. I'm just going to read verse 13 and verse 14. 13 is saying, others are mocking, saying these men are full of new wine. This is the preaching at the Pentecost. But it says this, but Paul standing up. No, it doesn't say that. But James standing up. No, it doesn't say that. It says, but Peter standing up with the 11 lifts up his voice. And says unto them, ye men of Judea, and he starts to preach Christ. Now you see that all throughout Acts, and I hope that we have the time with God's help to really drive that point. But the restoration of Peter is powerful. The restoration of Peter empowers you and I, because if you haven't fallen yet, I would tell you, be careful, because I've seen so many that do. I have fallen in my own personal experience and have been discouraged and sin has come into my life and everything else, but there's rest restoration through repentance and drawing close to the Lord in prayer and supplication, really uh, reading the Bible and spending time with him. In a study like this, it's very easy to go down a dark path. So my, my goal today as we look at the scriptures is really to glorify Christ in this message, bring light to the enemy's attacks, and then also provide biblical truths around the believer's victory in Christ, and that through it all we can worship like Job does, because it's interesting with Job, we're going to touch that in just a minute, how the lion, all right, that's Jay spoke about uh, in First Peter today, but Peter's writing also in First Peter chapter 5, he says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, and he did that with Job. Billy Graham once said these words, that there are three of you, there's the person you think you are, there's the person others think you are, and then there is the person God knows you are and can be through Christ, and that's through surrendering to him. Uh, we often say, well, we preach the gospel. And I ask, are we active gospel-wise? Do we live the gospel? Do we live Christ? When you look at Peter's restoration, Peter denies Christ, and then Peter is restored, and there's usefulness in the life of Peter. One might think as they reflect on his story that maybe it's due to Peter walking on water. Maybe his restoration is due when Peter looks back to his life and he says, listen, I know Christ because there's a day when I walked on water. I would tell you that's not what happened with Peter's restoration. I don't believe so. Many commentaries wouldn't believe so as well. Uh, maybe it's a time when he says, thou art the Christ, or we have forsaken all and followed thee, or maybe it's his privilege at the Mount of Transfiguration. I would say this, contrary to all that, the moments Peter had that were close with Christ, I would say what, tra and many writers would say this, I'm not saying I'm the one who's right, it's just, just through study here, but, uh, so I'm really borrowing words is what I'm doing, but uh, the truth is this, Peter's restoration started with his brokenness and denial, and that's when Peter was restored, that's when Peter became powerful for Christ. Sir Edward Elgar, a significant composer, he was once listening to a soloist singing one of his songs, and uh, she sang with beautiful voice. She had faultless pitch. 
she had a technique that was unsurpassed. And the individual that had brought this soloist to Sir Edgar, uh, Edward Elgar said, hey, listen, what do you think? She's incredible. It's like angelic singing. And Sir Edward Elgar said these words, she will be great when something happens to break her heart. She will be great when something happens to break her heart. She will be great when something happens to drive her passionately to sing this particular song. And so there was a voice that was needed and a, another element, as it were, to transform this girl. In Peter's life, there was another element, although he walked close with the Lord, it seems to be that way. It seems like he's a, a lion for Christ. He's always bold, but there's something that has to happen. God has to work in Peter's life to transform Peter, not from the outside out, but from the inward and through the outside. Our culture today, it recoils. Think about it. Uh, you, th you just think about what we're a part of today. Resumes, climbing ladders, uh, achieving success, being millionaires early in our life, buying homes, selling homes, whatever the case is, get going to Harvard, whatever it is. There's nothing wrong with all that. But our culture today, it recoils at any notion that brokenness leads to usefulness. Listen to what I said. It recoils. In other words, it steps back in almost... Uh, almost uh, with sickly fashion, right? It, it, it gets, they, they get sick. They say, well, hold on, you're broken. How could you ever be useful? That's the culture that we live in today. It's not God's culture. God works with broken vessels and he puts them back together and they're gold, they're salt of the earth. Notice these words. Peter trusted himself. Peter allowed the enemy to attack. But Peter realizes his brokenness, and then God brings Peter back from brokenness, and he brings him into life. So someone might ask the question, well, Matt, uh, you're speaking today, and uh, you're talking about how the enemy attacks, but how does he attack? Well, I would tell you this. He attacks in very sneaky ways. He's very powerful. I would tell you that he attacks believers in complacency. Some of us get saved. We forget that we are saved without works, and then we forget we need to do works to live Christ to others. It's just hard for me to speak about because I was just on another call. I was actually on two church calls this morning, one with the Gospel Hall in Illinois and then one with Lombard Bible Chapel in Illinois. And a close brother to me who works at Pacific Garden Mission, Ron Childers, who came out of prison. He was at the mission. He got saved at the mission. He started going to Moody Bible Institute. He's finishing his master's there in, in theology and everything else. But the Lord has been able to really use him, and he spoke today on not only living the gospel, but the gospel in action. And uh, he really drove that point home, and it searched my own heart. What am I doing for Christ? We don't need works to get to heaven, but the Bible also does teach, but by their works, by their fruits, how they live Christ, how they love people, how they have grace with people, how they're merciful with people, how we treat different ethnicities, how we treat different belief systems, how we treat different churches. And we become, as believers, complacent. I call it the punch in and the punch out. We, we can show up to church. Perhaps we've never missed a service all Sunday. But we're not in touch. We're not close to the Lord. We've identified, perhaps, church attendance with holiness. Charles Spurgeon said these words, I do not think the devil cares how many churches you build if only you have lukewarm preachers and people in them. God wants people who are passionate about truth. What is truth, Pilate asked. And truth stood right before Pilate. 
So the enemy attacks with complacency. The enemy also attacks with compromise. And part of my C's, it allows me to think and really remember things. But uh, the enemy attacks with compromise. Look at what happens in the garden. You go to Genesis. God gives man a garden. God gives everything they could ever desire. They can't touch a particular tree. And then the enemy says, and I believe it's in Genesis 3, if my memory serves me right. Uh, oh, and, and uh, sorry, Genesis chapter 2 says these words. Now the serpent was more subtle or clever. Don't think you and I can outsmart the enemy. We can't. We can't. Christ has crushed the enemy at the cross, but you and I can't outsmart him. So that's why the Bible also teaches not to fight the enemy. It says flee the enemy. He didn't remember that. But it says, anyway, verse 1, chapter 3. Oh, yeah, it is chapter 3. Sorry. So chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, yea, hath God said, listen to the words he says, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. You know what he's saying? Hey, Eve. Did God really say that you can't touch? I like to say that to those that I work with that are lost in time. Did God really say you can't touch this? Did God really say you can't touch this on your phone and look at this particular site? Did God really say that you can't go out there and touch those things? And he did, crystal clear. But that's what the enemy was with compromise. And believers can fall on it. Hey, there are, there are things that 20 years ago, when I was first saved, I would never talk about, I would never laugh about, I would never look at perhaps, but 20 years down the road, you kind of look back at your journey with Christ and you say, man, there's times I slipped. There's times I compromised. The enemy attacks with compromise. The enemy attacks with callous believers, desensitized, as it were, to perhaps to human worth. We lose passion in gospel work. It doesn't help us with these crazy masks we're wearing because as we look at human beings, it gets even worse. We look at human beings today with masks. We can't see a smile. We can't barely see their eyes. We can't see life. And God wants us to love sinners. God wants us to love Christians. And we become calloused, unintentionally on our end. Think about Revelations 2 and verse 4. The writer is saying, thou hast left your first love. Left, that word left in Greek is intentional. That's the intentional side there. Almost intentionally, now they're, they're going to church, they're doing things. It's not accidental. 30 years before that, the church of Ephesus was commended for its love. And then Revelations 2 and 5, after verse 4, it says, Remember that, therefore, from whence you are fallen, and repent, and do the first works. Remember your first love. So we have complacency. We have compromise. We have callous believers. We have costume believers. You ever meet a costume believer? Well, you're looking at one uh, at times. There are times you might ask me how I'm doing. I like Welsh's questions. Uh, Hebert, how you doing? How's everything going? And on here shows a smile. And listen, Hebert's doing phenomenal. You know what, though? Underneath the smile, underneath the costume, there's brokenness. Underneath the costume, there's a lot of stress. It wouldn't be very hard. You could ask my children. Dad's stressed? Oh, you might be, right? <laughs> and in our life, the enemy sometimes can convince us as believers to act a certain role. Why show vulnerability? vulnerability? Why show transparency? Why let the guard down and allow another believer, believer to love us as we are loved, as God loves us? God loves us the way you are. You are unique. You're precious. You're beautiful. And God loves you the way you are. Believer, we don't have to act a certain way. You don't have to pray a certain way to be accepted by God. You don't have to preach a certain way to be accepted by God. You don't have to treat people. As, no, live Christ. Be Christ. Take the costume off. Christ never wore a costume. Jesus was who he was. He loved God. He was in submission to God. He never changed. I get passionate about these topics because I really believe this, that the devil has convinced believers to wear costumes 
and it shatters our church community and it breaks relationships and it ruins ties that once were there. And we look back and we say, man, there was a day I was very close to that family and I'm not more. What came in? Callous came in. Compromise maybe came in. Complacency maybe came in. But I would tell you this, costume comes in and it ruins people. Confusion. You ever meet a believer who's confused? I have many times. Maybe they're confused uh, because of the guilt of their sin. Maybe they're confused if they're even saved. Can I just tell you this? Every time, even Jesus said it to the enemy, he said these words. That the, uh, he said these words that uh, look to the word of God when the devil is trying to convince Jesus to sin. He's trying to tempt Christ. Jesus says, the word said. If you're ever convinced or confused, or and sorry, if you're ever confused about your own salvation, can I just tell you, get back to the book. Just get back to it. There are days of my life when I step back and I say, boy, can it be that I'm going to heaven? Can it be that I'm really saved? Can it be that everything I did yesterday and everything I did today and everything I will do tomorrow, I will fall on my face. I'll perhaps sin, do things I never wanted to do in my life as God is seeking to, to, to mold me like his son and work with me, but I'm going to fall and fail. Can it be that I'm saved? You know where I always go back is this book. I go right back to the day I came to trust Christ. I go right back to what God revealed to me in Scripture. God so loved, I like what Matt Vanhart said today, the world. That's what, the verse that saved me. That he gave his only begotten son for Matt. That if Matt believes in him, Matt will never perish, but Matt will have everlasting life. So today, with God's help, we sort of dive into the enemy's dangerous, manipulating ways. And I just trust that it's a provision of encouragement for you. If you're, you feel that you've been struck perhaps by the enemy, maybe you're going through some discouraging times, but let's just look at a couple things. And I'm watching the time. Trust me, I've already been given the time I'm allowed, and I will close when it's time. I guarantee I'm very, I try to be as prompt as I can. But think of the constant attack of the enemy. Invisible, it's vital to understand this. I would tell you this, that Christ came to the earth to destroy the devil, to destroy his works, to destroy the power of sin. But it's, it's vital to you and I to understand that he's still attacking. He destroyed what the devil can do to a believer, right? As far as uh, remove salvation, Christ, uh, the believer can't lose their salvation, but the enemy's still attacking. Think of these words in Job chapter one. Listen to what happens to Job. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan is also with them. Notice that. I think it's in verse six or verse seven. Sons of God come to present themselves to the Lord. It says Satan is with them. And the Lord says to Satan, Satan, when comest thou? That's King James. So in our vernacular, let's see. Uh, why are you here? What do you have to present to me? And then Satan says to the Lord, uh, from going to and fro on the earth, because uh, God is asking, where have you come from? What, what are you doing? And Satan says, uh, I've gone to and fro on the earth. I've been walking up and down from it. And Satan has found his eyes on Job. And he's going to tempt Job. He's going to try to derail Job. You know what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8? I like what Jay mentioned, 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter's writing. But in verse five, uh, chapter 5 and verse 8, he's saying, be sober. Be vigilant. Well, why? Well, be sober means this. In the Greek, you'd understand it to mean this. It means keep our appetites and our passions under proper restraint and government. Or awake to see a sense of certainty and importance of things invisible and eternal. So in other words, be sober. Be alert. Be vigilant. The single in Greek, it means this, have immediate attention. There are many days of my life that I walk and I, uh, I would tell you that I, I would think the enemies wouldn't attack me that day. Uh, I'm having a good day. 
and close to the Lord that day. You know what the Bible says? Peter's saying, be sober, be vigilant, have immediate attention. The thought there is the sudden cry of warning from a shepherd who spies a lion prowling around the flock in the wilderness while guardians of the flock lie drowsy and secure. Peter's saying, don't be drowsy. Don't be secure in your own. No, no, be alert. Have immediate attention. Be watchful against subtle or malicious designs of a spiritual enemy. I would encourage believers in Palms Chapel, brethren and sisters alike, that we are watchful, that we have immediate attention, that we're sober, keep our appetites, our passions under proper restraint. Be balanced in your Christian walk. Don't let the enemy in. And then it says this, because your adversary, the devil, or your accuser, or the one that maligns you, or the one that calumniates you, or the one that informs against you. See, that's what Satan was doing to Job. He's like a roaring lion, Peter's saying. Peter can relate. Peter knows when, God, when the, a little, little girl, a little, it says a little damsel, I would think she's maybe 12 or 13. And she's just standing around. And she says, well, Peter was with him. And Peter denies Christ. Notice the words, Peter doesn't use the words angel of light, like 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 14. That is terror. That's persecution of believers. But this roaring, it really implies a hunger and a determination. I would tell you the enemy and his cohorts, they're determined. It's not like a lion crouching, waiting to creep up on its foe. But it's like a raging monarch in the woods. Do you know if you study what, how lions are, uh, it's very interesting. I did this years ago, but uh, it's just coming to memory here. Uh, I think it's 22 hours. If you're a young boy on the call or girl and you study this in your school, uh, I think it's 22 hours a day they sleep. Basically all day they're resting. But the moment a lion awakes is this. It's either to mate. It involves very, a, a very harsh, a very, a very aggressive nature, or it's to eat. Notice that. And hunt, right? So mating and hunting, aggression. And the Bible is saying, Peter is saying that the enemy is always awake. Be sober, he says. Be vigilant. Because the adversary there, as a roaring lion, he's awake. He's not sleeping. He's hungry. He's passionate. He wants to destroy. That's the thought here. Walketh about. Same language as Job 2 and 2. Job 1 and 6 and 7. The devil's been walking to and fro in all the earth. Job 2 and 2. You know what Peter's warning against? Sleeping shepherds. We're studying this. Elders. Shepherds. Watching the flock. He's warning against this. That Satan is attacking now. Now, Peter wrote this over 2,000 years ago. But he's saying he's attacking now. He's, he was attacking then. He's attacking even more so now. The lion's running to and fro. It's famished with hunger. It can't wait to pounce. That's the thought there. It uses insidious methods. It uses wiles. It uses strategies to surprise a foe. You ever been somewhere and as a believer and you say, man, I never thought that I would slip and do that. You're right. The enemy never put that in front of your face and said, you're going to slip. No, no, little things. He takes advantage, and he comes, and he surprises you. comes at them unawares. So Peter's saying, you need to be sober and be on guard. Peter was caught off guard. He was off guard when he was at the cross. And then Peter says, seeking whom he may devour. The thought there in Greek is seeking which he may devour, or which he may swallow up, or which he may destroy. I'm telling you all this to encourage us. You know, if we're together as a unit, if we are united, we are united through the blood of Christ, but if we're united as a church, and we're careful, and we're watching, and we help each other, and we disciple each other, and we live Christ to each other, the enemy has no chance if we live that. Now we're going to slip. That's what happens. But seeking whom he may devour, the thought of eyeing, 
researching. That's what Greek teaches here. Researching the believer. Know his passions. Know his problems. Know the times he's going to slip. Looking for the best chance that a Christian has for him to be devoured by the enemy. And then he says, verse 9, whom resist steadfast in the faith. Charles Purgeon said this, and I tell you this to encourage you. He says this, if the devil never roars, the church will never sing. Are you listening? If the devil never roars, the church will never sing. He continues, God is not doing much if the devil is not awake and busy. Depend on it. A working Christ makes a raging devil. When you hear ill reports, you hear cruel speeches, you hear threats, you hear taunts, and the like, believe that the Lord is among his people and is working gloriously. Now, we looked at the constant attacks. Let's look at the conniving attacks. Jonathan Edwards said these words, we cannot believe the church of God is already possessed of all that light which God intends to give it, nor that all Satan's lurking places have already been found out. The Bible says that the devil is like an angel of light. Light's always associated with good. But you and I need to discern this because he disguises himself in light. And yet there's a costume there because as that costume is revealed, there's wickedness. He attacks us subtly. He attacks us with sensuality. He attacks us with billboards. He attacks us with triggers. He attacks us with worldly pleasures. He attacks us with carnality of the world. Not hard to know where a Christian stands. I always say, just a couple minutes, just talk to a believer and see really what drives them. Why do they wake up in the morning? Why do they stay awake late at night? What, what are they involved with? What fuels their passion in this world? Is it the worldly things? Or is it things of eternity? As Colossians chapter 3 says, to fix our heart, to fix our gaze on things that matter. The angel of light. Perhaps it's grass is always greener. And I know some believers who jump from church to church, really no consistency in their testimony. There's always something better. I would tell you there's no church that's perfect. Palms is not perfect. Uh, the gospel halls that I know of are not perfect. Assemblies are not perfect. Uh, the Calvary Church is not perfect. Right? So he describes himself as an angel of light. It involves deceptive false prophets, wolves in sheep's clothing. Now, you know all about this. That's what 1 Corinthians teaches in other parts of Scripture. He wants believers to think he's good or truthful or loving or powerful. He's all that God is. Well, God has dethroned the enemy. Never forget it. And so, but notice, uh, perhaps I would say the biggest disguise, and I tell you this because we really need to be truthful to this in our testimony at Palms, is the biggest disguise the enemy has ever done is he has watered down the gospel. There's many places and even many good believers preaching the gospel, but there's no cross. Preaching the gospel, but there's no sin. People feel good. Preaching the gospel, but there's no blood. Preaching the gospel, but Christ never came, died, was buried, and rose again. He's watered it down. Very feel-good message. John 10, and said, 10 says this, the thief comes not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. He deceives nations, Revelation chapter 20. He deceives the unsaved, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He defeats the saved at times. There's a quote, if Satan can't get a Christian to fall into the pollution of sin, he will push the believer beyond the will of God into legalism and fanaticism. If you don't know anyone like that, uh, I'd be shocked. Right? But can I encourage you? Proverbs chapter 24 says, a just man falls seven times and rise again. First John chapter 4 says, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 
Second Corinthians chapter two and verse 14 says, now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ and makes manifest the savior of his knowledge by us in every place. Creating comfortability. Believers with fear and discouragement. Believers perhaps suffering from legalism. The exterior appearance of holiness and surface level appears to honor God. This is legalism, sticking to certain things. Not embracing believers for who they are. We start worshiping the mission perhaps of doing than worshiping God himself. He attacks us in pride. Now there's 20 or so things that I looked at in scripture uh, that how the enemy is attacked then, attacks today, and can continue to attack. And we will go through there just because time is moving and I really want to encourage you with my message today because this has been a lot about the enemy attacking. All right, Moody quotes said this, Christians should live in the world but not be filled with it. Like a ship lives in the water, but if the water gets into the ship, she goes to the bottom. You guys know this. So Christians may live in the world, but if the world gets into them, Moody said, they sink. And so how do we combat the enemy with just not too much time here left? Uh, I would tell you this. There's a progressive path that led Peter to his denial. There was overconfidence in Peter's life. There was prayerlessness in Peter's life. And if you want some thoughts behind all this, I'm just rushing because I'm looking at my timer. Uh, we're 29 in, and i got to finish soon here, okay? So, uh, but this path, it searches you and I. Overconfidence, prayerlessness, not listening to Christ. Jesus says, you're going to deny me. Peter says, no, I won't. He's not listening. Associating with the wrong crowd. Peter was not with his disciples. He's with the wrong crowd. He's with this little damsel. He reverts back to old habits. Notice P- something I never noticed just a few years ago. But in Mark chapter 14, it says this, and Peter followed him afar off into the palace of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself of the power. And notice the same language in Luke 22. It says that he curses. He uses some of his old habits. He cursed with God as my witness, Peter says. He never used to talk like that. Think about a fisherman, perhaps, in his filthy mouth. He's back to his old habits, and the enemy has attacked. And then finally, he has outright denial. So we understand the cock crow. We understand uh, Peter's denial, but notice I would tell you that even throughout Peter's denial, when the Lord looked upon Peter, the Lord looked at Peter with love. The Lord looked at Peter with forgiveness. The Lord looks at you and I the same way. Some of us have been challenged in the past. Speaker alike, but he wants to forgive. He looks at you and I with love. Well, how do we stand firm? How do we resist the devil so he flees? Well, we submit to God. We be sober. We be alert. We be resistant to him. It doesn't say to fight the devil. It just says, don't give place to the devil. That's Ephesians chapter four. Don't speak lightly of him. Think about Michael, the archangel. He didn't speak lightly of him. Look at Jude chapter eight and nine. It says, likewise, all these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion and speak evil of dignities. Verse nine says this, yet Michael, the archangel. I, 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 I uh, shudder when I hear a believer say, ah, the enemy has no chance. That's not true. Listen to what Michael the archangel says. When contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, does not bring against him a railing accusation. But Michael says this, the Lord, he says, rebuke thee. Michael wasn't going to fight him. He said, my God will rebuke you. So we shouldn't be fighting as well. So we think about the five defenses, pieces of armor for protection, truth, righteousness, the gospel being proclaimed, faith, and salvation. We think of two offensive weapons for attack the sword of the scripture, and prayer, all right? When we deal with people downtown, there's a pastor, McNeil, who's at Pacific Garden Mission. He's asked 
why so many PGM or Pacific Guard Admission Bible program students have verses memorized, have verses understood. Why are they in this book so much? Why do they soak it in so deeply? His answer is always this. You know, there's an ABM, anti-ballistic missile. It's a surface-to-surface missile. It's designed to counter ballistic missiles from the enemy. He said the word of God, when it's planted, so in other words, if a missile's coming from, uh, let's use another country, China or North Korea, and it's coming to the United States, these anti-ballistic missiles go out and they intercept missiles that are coming in. He said when the word of God is planted in the heart, when sin rears its ugly head, when the enemy whispers deceit in the heart of a new believer, we intercept that, not with our own wisdom, not with our own words. We intercept the enemy's darts with the word of God. So look at this comeback revival. So you think, well, Peter has no chance. Peter's denied Christ. The Lord's probably pushed him off to the side. Uh, what in the world is happening? So think of these things. In Luke chapter 24, when uh, Jesus, well, it's very interesting, even if you uh, back up a little bit, Jesus has um, resurrected from the tomb. You see Mark chapter 1. Uh, Jesus has been buried. An angel, okay, says unto them, don't be affrighted. You see Jesus of Nazareth, which was, which was crucified. He's risen. He says, he is not here. Behold the place where they laid him, but go your way. He says, tell his disciples and Peter. Did you notice that? Mark chapter 16, verse 6 and 7. Tell his disciples and Peter that he goes before you into Galilee. You'll see him. And he said unto you, and he continues, God's still concerned with Peter, but the one who hurtfully betrayed him. Christ is still concerned with him. Notice Luke chapter 24, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, other women, tell the apostles about Jesus' resurrection. And then it says in verse 12 or 11 and 12 in Luke chapter 24, this is good old Peter. And their words seem to them as idle tales. They're telling of the Messiah's resurrection. They're telling of Christ who's risen. And to the other disciples, the words of these ladies, you know what I love? Power of the sisters here. The sisters are the ones who go and see Christ, not the brethren. Believer, uh, sister on the call, God wants to use you in a mighty way. They're the ones who are telling the people that Jesus is risen, not the brethren. Anyway, so I digress, okay? Uh, there's a lot there. We can go on that all day, all right? So anyway, it says that their words seem to them as idle tales, and they believe them not. Verse 12, then arose Peter, and he runs to the sepulcher, and stooping down, he beholds the linen clothes laid by themselves. God is using Peter. Peter has been hurt. Peter has seen his, his own fleshly self broken. And now God is starting to work with him through repentance. God is starting to work with him through restoration. And he's coming alive for the very first time, perhaps in his Christian walk. Think of these, work, these works in Acts. Some people call the book of Acts the Acts of the Holy Spirit. God in Acts chooses a spokesperson for himself. God doesn't choose a spokesperson for a church or for a pastor or for a priest. God says, I need someone to speak from my lips. And Luke's the author here in Acts, and look what he writes about Peter. I'm going to fly through these really quick. The Holy Ghost is moving in Peter and moving in Acts chapter 2 during the Pentecost. Men are mocking in verse 13. You say, well, how could God use someone who's broken? How could God use someone like me who's broken on the call? How could God use someone like me that's discouraged on the call, perhaps has thrown back his hands and said, listen, I give up. This walk for Christ is too hard. I've fallen too many times. Look what God does with Peter. Acts chapter 2 and verse 14. It says this, as men are mocking. You know, Peter couldn't stand up to a damsel, a little girl. Here there's men, they're not foolish men, they're smart men, and they're mocking 
that the Christ is risen. They're mocking what's happening to these disciples. And it says, as God takes a man and he uses him as his spokesperson, he doesn't take anyone else. He says, but Peter, Acts chapter 2 and verse 14, standing up to the 11, lifts up his voice. The thought there is he began to preach. He began to proclaim Christ. Acts chapter 2 and verse 20, you continue six verses down. He's saying, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 23, think of the boldness in Peter's life. He says these to the men, he says, you've taken with wicked hands, you've crucified Christ, you've slain Christ, whom God, verse 24, hath raised up the boldness in Peter. Peter's been broken, and now he's bold. He's still preaching in verse 36. Goes throughout the whole chapter. He says, God hath made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and and Christ. And then he tells them, even more than that, he says this, God's speaking here. God is speaking through a man. That's how God works. He restores, and he uses that person to bring him glory. He says, repent, Peter says, and you be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive a gift of the Holy Ghost. And then 3,000 souls are added. Again, God using Peter as his spokesperson. I can do this. Time is run out, guys. But believers, search through Acts. You want an encouraging story, search through Acts and look what God does with Peter. Acts 3, Peter fastens his eyes on a lame man and in the name of Jesus, he causes him to rise up and walk. Peter, Acts in 4, he's filled with the Holy Ghost. says he lifts up his voice and he says there's no salvation in any other except the person of Christ. And I can continue doing this all throughout Acts chapter 4 and so on. In Peter, Peter's life, you think about T- Tabitha. This is just flying off the little shelf of memory here. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 40-ish, it says, Peter says, Tabitha, arise. That's the same Peter that denied Christ. Now he's repented. Now he's in full obedience to him. And God's using him more now than ever before. Our God, can I encourage you, is a God of restoration. Our God, can I encourage you, is a God of healing. He's a God of full recovery to those who have fallen. To those that are broken, believers, we need to cling to him. We cling to him and we overcome the attacks of the enemy. We cling to him and we live lives that bring glory to him. I close. Thomas Brooks said these words. If you're being attacked by the enemy, just pay attention. Satan promises the best. Thomas Brooks quote. Satan promises the best, but he pays with the worst. He promises honor and he pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure and he pays with pain. He promises profit, and he pays with loss. He promises life, and he pays with death. Billy Sunday, in a sermon titled Wonderful, quoted this. I quote from him, really. I'm borrowing his words. He said this. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. By the way, Billy Sunday was saved at Pacific Art Admission. Just a simple plug. Okay, so I continue. All right. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. So God sends us a savior. There are 256 names given in the Bible for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I suppose as Billy Sunday says, and I suppose this was because he was infinitely beyond all that any one name could express. So I'm trying to encourage you, believers, through the roughest attacks and through our testing. 
in Christ, you and I have a love that can never be fathomed. We have a life that can never die. We have a righteousness that can never be tarnished. We have a peace. There's a world that's so filled with unrest right now. They're filled with chaos. They can't understand what's happening. You and I have a peace that could never be understood. That's scriptural. We have a rest that can never be disturbed. We have a joy that can never be diminished. If your joy is in Christ, it cannot be diminished because Christ can't be diminished. We have a hope that can never be disappointed. We have a glory that can never be clouded. We have a light that can never be darkened. Be encouraged. There's a beauty in you as a believer, regardless of mistakes, regardless of faults. That beauty can never be marred. Why? Because you are covered by the blood of Christ. And when God looks down, he sees the amazing work that his son did for believers. So let me, let me just close with this here. I said close already once. But I'm going to close with a quote Billy Graham said at the beginning of our message. We said there's a person we think we are, or other people think we are, but how God really knows who we are. So let's end life. Let's enter eternity. Let's enjoy the rest of our life from this moment on. How about that? From being the person, as Billy Graham said, not the person we think we are, not the person others think we are, but the person that he knew we would be, God knew we would be, and were through Christ. And we seek to emulate Christ. I had a poem on Christ for sickness, Christ for health. We won't end with that. My time is up, but let me just pray perhaps. And um, I trust it's been encouragement. If you've fallen, if you've struggled, if you've been discouraged, if you think you've slipped and you've gone on a, a, a bad way, God is the God of restoration. God is the God of love. It's never changed. He's the God of forgiveness. He'd love to bring you back and create, like Peter, a more powerful believer in your life than has ever been before, and that's through restoration. So let's pray together, and I trust that you've enjoyed some of these very simple thoughts. Father in heaven, we're thankful for our Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful, Father, for his forgiveness. We're thankful, Father, for his mercy. We're thankful, Father, for his grace. We're thankful, Father, for his holiness. We're thankful, Father, for his love to win the believer back. We're thankful, Father, we can never lose our salvation. Our names are engraved in the palms of his hands. But Lord, we know through our fool foolishness, through our, our, our flesh, that we can fall. We know if we really do self-reflection transparently, vulnerably, just before you, not before others, we know, Father, there are days when we've fallen. So, Father, we're thankful that like Peter, although he denied Christ, and we perhaps deny him uh, many times, that our God is a God of restoration. So, Father, uh, bid us, Lord, uh, to be encouraged, Lord, draw close, and Lord, continue to guide us, encourage us, keep loving us. We know that that will never fail. And Lord, help us, Lord, to emulate the person of Christ in everything that we do, from our employment, to our engagement with our families, to our relationships, our spouse relationship, everything else that we encounter. Help, Father, people to see Christ identified in our walk. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.